Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And my name is Jen Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Today, we are talking to Dr. Ivor Hill about celiac disease. He's been a leader, really, in the care of children with celiac disease for several decades. He's written hundreds of articles and chapters on the topic. He's held a number of leadership positions within NASPGAN and also the American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP. And actually, he won the AAP Education Award uh, just last year because of his work within the uh, organization. Today, he's going to talk to us about celiac disease. Celiac disease is something that we in pediatric gastroenterology diagnose and treat regularly, but it's also something that is important for families and primary care doctors to know about, especially because we believe that it's way more common than we currently recognize it to be. I think there's also some more controversial aspects to evaluating and diagnosing and treating celiac disease and also about non-celiac disease gluten-related disorders. It's on to the show. Dr. Ivor Hill, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bow Sounds podcast. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We will be talking about celiac disease, a problem that's not only important for pediatric gastroenterologists to understand, but for pediatricians, other primary care providers, parents, and patients. So before we get into the topic, though, just want to ask you a little bit about yourself. So obviously, throughout my fellowship, you were my clinic preceptor, so I know some of your background. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Um, but first of all, how did you develop this interest in celiac disease? Uh, like what led you to focus on celiac disease rather than something else like motility issues? Well, let me go back to my time as a gastroenterologist in South Africa. Um, while there, I had seen a few patients with celiac disease, but it really wasn't an interest. I was mainly focused on chronic diarrhea and malabsorption syndromes. Then in 1990, I came to Philadelphia to work at Hahnemann Hospital, initially to do a year of sabbatical, but that rapidly evolved into a full-time faculty position, and I was there for about three years. I think in retrospect, as I look back during that time, I was aware, but it didn't hit me too much, that we didn't see any patients with celiac disease. My colleagues never spoke about it at all. But it wasn't until 1993 when I moved down to the University of Maryland and uh, there met Alessio Fasano, who subsequently became a very good colleague and friend. And during many discussions, uh, this, this topic came up. He was obviously very aware of celiac disease, having come from Italy. And at that time, if you looked at the literature, they were reporting an increase in prevalence. Many areas saying maybe as many as 1%. So this got us thinking. You know, it didn't really make sense if you consider it. A lot of the genetic potential came from Europe when you think of where the immigrants came from. And let's face it, wheat is pretty ubiquitous in the United States, so why were we not seeing celiac disease here? And that's really where the interest started. Um, we started to ask the questions, initiated some early studies where we looked at uh, some 1,200 kids that had both symptoms or maybe a risk factor such as type 1 diabetes, bought 2,000 samples of serum from the American Red Cross uh, blood bank and looked at these, and sure enough, we were finding it when we looked for it. And that obviously led to the, the final study where 13,000 plus patients from across 32 states in the United States were tested, some with symptoms, some who were just going for health checks. And interestingly enough, of the healthy subjects, about one in 131 had positive antibodies 
suggesting we were really no different from Europe at that time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was an opportunity that came our way, and I developed a big interest in it, and so um, became a celiacologist. A celiacologist. Nice. You know, nice. I'd be really interesting on what that phone conversation was like when you called the blood bank. I'd like to purchase yeah, samples. Uh, yeah, actually, Alessio was the one who, who initiated that. There'd been a study similar to that in Europe where they'd looked at blood bank uh, serum. And so it was an easy way to look at patients who presumably were healthy because they were blood donors. We didn't know anything else about them. And initially, we only had the endomesal antibody. This was before the time of the tissue transglutaminase and found uh, eight out of 2,000 were positive, which would say one in 250. And then subsequently, when the TTG became uh, available, we retested them and found another eight. Hmm. So it was one in 125, basically, same as they were seeing in Europe, suggesting that uh, we were no different. Yeah, and that leads us to our next question. So I think many of our listeners care for children with celiac disease regularly, and we all have our own way of explaining the diagnosis to families, but... How do you do it? How do you explain celiac disease to a family of a child who is newly diagnosed? Well, first of all, I like to be very positive. And I tell the parents that if I was going to choose one disease or one condition, chronic condition in this world, I would choose celiac disease because it's totally curable just by changing your diet. There's no need for drugs. There's no need for potential side effects. So that's the positive spin. And then, obviously, many parents of newly diagnosed have never heard of celiac disease in their family or any any other family member. So we do discuss that there is a genetic predisposition and that you have to be exposed to uh, gluten or wheat products, products from wheat, barley, and rye. And that in some cases, we believe there may even be a third trigger factor that precipitates the disease, which would explain why some children seem to do well for many years and then develop a problem. And so, you know, um, parents will often ask me, well, if they don't have celiac disease, how can their child have celiac disease? So we discuss the fact that, you know, the parents can carry one part of the gene individually, but when they uh, have a child, those two parts come together and we talk about that. So I try and put a very positive spin on it because I think it's, it's one of the better conditions to have in this world if you're going to have a chronic condition. And I think it's important for people to know that, um, you know, the majority of cases we think are undiagnosed. And I think it's important for families and uh, primary care providers to recognize that. So I saw in a review that you wrote with our very own Dr. Tracy Ediger that um, we estimate that for every person diagnosed with celiac disease, there are maybe 50 who have not been diagnosed. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this really does come to this classical iceberg uh, effect where those that are diagnosed above the water, but the vast majority is still below the water. I think in the past... Many of them were just not being diagnosed because people weren't aware of that. Fortunately now, you know, physicians and primary healthcare providers are much more aware of celiac disease and are testing more frequently, so that number will come down. Uh, But of course, there are many who have very mild symptoms or asymptomatic uh, who may have celiac disease and account for that uh, large portion under the the water level of the iceberg. I think the NASPIGAN clinical report on gluten-related disorders provides guidance on making the diagnosis. Um, so right now, we just do an anti-tissue transglutaminase antibody and verify a normal IgA level. Um, is there any role in the initial screening, maybe ordered by like a primary care doctor for the other serologies, or are we really asking them just to get those two things? And yeah. So there's more than enough evidence to show that the most cost-effective way of screening for celiac disease is simply a TTG IgA and, and a serum IgA level. 
I'm not even sure that every patient needs a serum IgA level. There was a very interesting study out of Sweden that looked at some 7,800 people. And in fact, if they hadn't done a serum IgA on all of them, they would have missed only two patients with celiac disease. Mm. So it may not be cost-effective to get a serum IgA on every patient, but we're still recommending that. Doing the panel of tests, all that that does is just increase the cost. It's not going to help you anymore at all. Now, the one thing that's interesting is, and I think the guidelines have always said this, that if you are under two years of age, these tests are less sensitive and you should always get an additional test. And up until now, we've been recommending the diamidate gliadin peptide IgG. We can now debunk that myth. We've actually just uh, had a paper accepted that has shown that if you're under two years of age and you have a normal serum IgA level, having a TTG IgA is all you need. You don't need the DGP IgG. Oh, man. man. Hot off the press. Hot off the press. But for those with an abnormal screening, we then confirm the diagnosis endoscopically. Um, But as you know, the guidelines from European colleagues argue that endoscopy may not always be needed. So what situations do you feel that the blood testing alone would be sufficient? So if you look at the original guidelines published in 2012, what our colleagues in Europe said is that you have typical symptoms and a TTG level that's greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal. And then on a second blood sample, you get an HLA and an N-amesyl antibody. And if they are still compatible with celiac disease, it's acceptable to make a diagnosis and then treat. And if there's symptom resolution and the numbers come back to normal, you accept the diagnosis. The more recent guidelines have expanded that a little bit. I think even now that they, they, even some of them are talking about even in the asymptomatic individual, if your number is greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal, you might be able to consider a non-biopsy diagnosis. I think it's very acceptable to do that. Uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to say if you're totally asymptomatic uh, that I would make the diagnosis without a biopsy. I feel very strongly that, you know, the gluten-free diet is very cumbersome. People who are on it, you know, we have our annual meeting here, and one of the questions I always ask our teenagers with celiac disease is, what is the one thing you don't like about the diet? The two common responses I get is, one, I can't just do whatever my friends do and go out and eat or just socialize. And the other is they hate having to read everything before they put anything in their mouth. So it does have implications. And I feel very strongly you need to be sure of the diagnosis before you put a child on a gluten-free diet for life. So it sounds like for those symptomatic patients with a tissue transglutaminase greater than 10 times, you may consider non-biopsy diagnosis. Correct. Do you still, would you still want to get that HLA typing and then the anti-endomysal antibody or is that not really? No, I think that's now become redundant. In fact, in the new guidelines that have come out, they're no longer saying that you need the HLA type. So if Mm -hmm. your tissue transglutaminase is greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal, you're going to have the positive HLA type and that's just a waste of money. Where I disagree with the new guidelines is they are still asking for a second blood test with an endomysal antibody. And I don't think that's necessary. I think if you've got a TTG greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal, the end measles antibody is not going to make any difference in my book. So if we're thinking about that possibility of um, you know, bypassing the endoscopy for those who have symptoms and then a high enough level, um, I mean, what's the downside of that? I mean, are there patients that we might miss if there's another reason for their TTG? I mean, I know it's very specific, you know, is there an argument for doing the endoscopy? Well, I think the downside is if you have a child who is symptomatic, who has a very high level, and you put them on the gluten-free diet, 
and their symptoms persist mm-hmm. and their TTG level comes down. We know that there's no good correlation between symptoms, TTG level, and uh, intestinal histology on children who are on a gluten-free diet, adults as well. So that then becomes the dilemma as to, you know, what was going on in the beginning? Do you still have problems? And you're going to end up biopsying those children. It would be nice to have a baseline and show a change in those particular individuals, but uh, you're going to have to take them on a case-by-case basis, I think. Yeah. We think about patients who are symptomatic differently than we do patients who are asymptomatic. Um, But are there times when you would go ahead and test someone who is asymptomatic? Like, are there certain populations, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, like I think there's some populations where we might want to do uh, screening annually or periodically based on like an increased risk? I think this is the big unanswered question in celiac disease. We do not know the natural history of the condition. Mm -hmm. So I personally believe it's quite possible to have elevated TTG, even changes on intestinal biopsy and go through life without ever having a problem. Mm -hmm. How many patients that would affect, I don't know. So if you look at the guidelines, in pediatrics, we've been kind of um, conservative, and we've uh, recommended that every patient who's at an increased risk group, be it a a family member, a patient with type 1 diabetes, a patient with other autoimmune diseases, Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, we are saying test even if you're completely asymptomatic. And if you're positive, then you should have a biopsy and go on to gluten-free diet. Some problems with that... um, there are some cases where, you know, if you f- put them on a gluten-free diet and they're totally asymptomatic, they don't perceive a benefit. Mm-hmm. Within a year, they're not following the diet anymore. I've actually had one teenager look me straight in the face and say, if you test me and I'm positive, I'm not going on that diet. So regardless of what you do, I will not follow it. So, you know, nice. there is that. It is a problem. I think our adult colleagues are a little bit more pragmatic and I tend to follow the, these things. They say that, look, we don't know the natural history. So therefore, rather than just screen everybody, be very aware that they are at increased risk and should they ever develop any symptom whatsoever, then consider testing them immediately. It may be a little bit more pragmatic than what we're doing. Uh, I just don't know that we know what the potential problems are if you don't treat somebody who is totally asymptomatic. Sure. Yeah. And just to follow up on that a little bit, so I think it's not unusual where you diagnosed one child and the family is worried about their siblings or them or other, you know, in that scenario, if they are asymptomatic, it's like an asymptomatic sibling. Um, what do you usually say? Do you still screen them or do you just yeah. say, Hey, let's hold off and wait for them to develop symptoms. So my approach is to sit down with the family and discuss all the facts as we know them. Right. Tell them that their child, other children are at increased risk in the general population, it's about 1%. When you've got a family member, it can go anywhere from 10 to 20%. So there is an increased risk. But that still means there could be 80% of the family members who are never going to get to celiac disease. So right. that, that's the positive. And I try and gauge where the family's level of comfort is. If they're very anxious and they really want to know, we'll go ahead and screen. If they are perfectly happy for me to follow that child very closely over a period of time, and should they ever develop a symptom, we'll screen them then. I'm perfectly happy to accept that. You know, I first believe that you do no harm in the first place and try to work with the families very closely on those issues. Yeah, shared decision-making. I love that. In in that regard, I think it's very important to show that they are growing adequately, both linear growth and and weight, and that they have no symptoms whatsoever, in which case I'd be prepared to watch them. Yeah. 
So I'd like to talk some about patients who have celiac disease. And we've alluded to this some, that the compliance with a gluten-free diet is a big challenge for children and their families, especially the children who have mild or no symptoms. Uh, what do you tell these families? And how do you talk about the long-term risks of an untreated disease? So certainly there's very good evidence that if you have symptomatic celiac disease and you do not follow a gluten-free diet, you're putting yourself at potential adverse risk uh, implications. I don't like to push the cancer side of things, which a lot of people try and throw out there. I think in, in reality, there is an increased risk of, of an intestinal lymphoma, a fourfold increased risk. But remember, intestinal lymphoma is one of the rarest forms of cancer that you can get anyway. So a fourfold increased risk doesn't take you up too much. I, I tend to prefer looking at the other issues such as bone health, uh, potential for just feeling not feeling good um, in females, certainly the problems with reproductive health and those sorts of things and try and encourage the families to really keep them on a strict gluten-free diet if they are proven celiac with symptoms beforehand. We don't have any evidence that patients who are totally asymptomatic are at increased risk, certainly for the intestinal cancers. That, that I think has been well shown. And I don't know that they have good evidence that long-term they're increased risk for some of these other adverse health implications either. We worry about growth, obviously, in children, so very carefully monitoring growth if they are growing well, I think is, is kind of reassuring. Um, but as to the other conditions, I don't know. Yeah, because I feel like we run into that all the time in clinic where the child is, maybe you diagnose them as a younger child and now they're a teenager, they don't want to do it. So I think sometimes focusing on, well, this may help you have more energy and be better at football and play and gain weight better. That's a great, it's hard to that's find. A great line to take. Yeah. <laughs> great I mean, I think the other point too is about the whole family being involved, right? It's really, it's even harder for the teenager if the, if the sister gets to eat that chocolate chip cookie right. that you can't have. Sure. Absolutely right. So what a lot of our families will do is when they're at home, they're completely gluten-free, but when those who don't have celiac disease go out, they do whatever they want. And I think that's a better uh, way of dealing with it for the individual who has celiac disease. They don't feel too different at home. Yeah. One of the most common questions I feel like that I get from uh, patients who we knew are patients and their parents after we make a new diagnosis is they want to know whether this is a diet that their child left to be on forever. And, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the answer is yes. Um, right now, our understanding is that we will have to be on this diet uh, for the rest of their life. But what do you think about that? I mean, like, obviously, technology and, you know, research is going to change a lot over the coming decades. Um, do you, how do you usually answer that question when families ask you? And do you think there are things on the horizon that might change that answer? So at the moment, the only thing that is proven to be effective is the gluten-free diet. Okay? It's cumbersome, but it's very healthy for a person who has celiac disease. There's a lot on the horizon that they're looking at, um, digestive enzymes to break down the peptides to non-toxic forms, binding peptides, all sorts of different things. My take on those things at the moment, and there's also the, like the lorazotide, which is, uh, that keeps the tight junction closed when you've got a, a receptor antagonist. Those things are all very transient. I don't think it will ever completely replace the gluten-free diet. Yeah. If you take the digestive enzymes, it's very difficult to imagine you can break down all the peptides in such a rapid fashion that none of them come in contact with the intestinal mucosa be, to be absorbed. 
The lorazotide works for 90 minutes, um, so you can certainly block up uptake of peptides for a short while. Um, so I see these things more as something that would be for rescue. Mm -hmm. If uh, you, you're going out to eat um, as a celiac, one of the biggest problems you have is being sure that your food is gluten-free. You can take as many precautions as you can, but there's still a chance that a small amount of gluten comes through. That would be the perfect time to take those things which can deal with small amounts of gluten or maybe block the peptide uptake for 90 minutes and give you some relief. So at the moment, that's where I think we are. I don't see anything really good on the horizon that's going to prevent uh, or change the fact that we have to be on a gluten-free diet if we have celiac disease. Yeah. Hmm. But maybe, you know, for those teenagers where the hardest challenge is, you know, eating out with their friends, Absolutely. maybe in the future, um, perhaps not even so distant future, there's something they can take that might allow them to do that. I think that's where I see the potential for these enzymes and for the lorazotide, yes. Yeah. You knew we were going to have to bring this topic up, but the majority of people on a gluten-free diet do not have celiac disease. And we all have patients or friends or family members who swear that avoiding gluten make them feel better, even if the testing shows that they do not have celiac or a true wheat allergy. So what are your thoughts on non-celiac gluten sensitivity? And is there anything wrong with us telling these patients to go ahead and continue the gluten-free diet? So let me just step back a little bit. For a patient with celiac disease, it's absolutely essential that they're strictly gluten-free for the rest of their life. It's cumbersome, it's more expensive, but it's absolutely essential. For the rest, it's probably not essential to be strictly gluten-free. I think the vast majority of people who get symptom relief when they're on a gluten-free diet are actually responding to the removal or the decrease in the amount of fructans which come with wheat, which are one of the fermentable uh, foods that uh, create a lot of symptoms. I do believe that there's probably a very small number of patients who have a true non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that they're sensitive to the gluten component, not what comes with the gluten, the fructans. We don't have a way of diagnosing that other than a strict challenge removal challenge type um, uh, approach, but it's a very small percentage. The vast majority of the other people are responding more to the removal of the uh, fructooligosaccharides. And so obviously this is a major understatement, but the press on gluten and wheat has been very negative. Um, why do you think people have focused so much on gluten and wheat as being kind of the reasons for all the medical issues that we're facing in society today. The bad guy. Yeah. I think the gluten-free diet has just become the latest fad. Yeah. It's fanned by celebrities. I mean, there are a lot of celebrities out there who are touting it. There are some sports personalities like Novak Dojcevic swears that going gluten-free improved his performance and got him to number one in the world. Uh, all sorts of celebrities out there touting the benefits of this. I do believe that some of them may feel better when they go gluten-free. It's because they're not generating any gas and feeling uncomfortable and avoiding the fructans. The difference between them and celiac disease is that they probably don't have to be strictly gluten-free. They just have to decrease it. It's a bit like lactose intolerance. If you stay within your limits, you're fine. If you exceed your limits, you're going to have problems. And I think it's the same thing with uh, um, wheat. It's also, so, you know, for families that bring that up and the celiac screening is negative, I think it's also important to tell them like, it's not that you're not actually feeling better. It's that, you know, this may be not because of celiac disease, but because we're almost doing a low FODMAP diet, like we use for aerial bowel syndrome, like a low fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and polyols type diet. 
I personally so, believe that's very true. Yeah, that's so it's belief. not that it's not real. It's just that the mechanism is different. I think some people genuinely feel better when they decrease the amount of wheat products that they ingest. Yeah. It has, I think it has some benefit to our patients who actually have celiac disease because now there's more options available um, at restaurants, at the supermarket. Without a doubt. So since this fad has, has really taken off, you've had more manufacturers coming on producing gluten-free products, which has really improved the, the life of our patients with celiac disease. If I go back to the early 90s when I used to go to celiac support groups, the food available there was just awful. You know, it was like eating cardboard. It was better to eat the pizza box than actually eat the pizza <laughs> itself. Today, the food is tremendous. It really is very good. But there's been a downside because our, some of our celiac patients have actually perceived when they go out and they tell somebody in a restaurant that they're gluten-free, yeah. they get frowned upon as being one of these quirks who are following the fad diet and right. not really. So that's the little downside to this. But I think the plus side outweighs the, the, the downside in, in this yeah. case. Uh, there are apps now to help you find gluten-free restaurants, right? Correct. And but none of this existed before. There are, but you have to be very careful. There was a study done that looked at um, oh thousands of restaurants all over the place uh, that were apparently giving gluten-free food, but when they actually tested the food, many of them, a good percentage of them, still had traces of gluten in their, their products. Mm. So uh, again, our patients with celiac disease have to be very, very particular about this, this problem, which again can, brings me back to the possibility that one day we'll have a good enzyme that you can take and even those little traces of gluten are not going to do any harm because you can actually neutralize it with the enzymes. Yeah. At least for our patients here, I think it's critical to have a dietitian that they have available, not, e not even just in the beginning, but someone they can kind of ref refer to and, and talk to over the course of um, having this disease. Peter, you raise an extremely important point here. I do not have the knowledge to teach somebody how to go gluten-free. Plus, the gluten-free diet itself, although it's very healthy for people with celiac disease, does have some problems. Mm -hmm. It is low in calcium, low in iron, low in certain vitamin, uh, B vitamin groups, low in fiber. So these things is, uh, have to be taken into consideration, consideration, and that's where a good dietitian who's knowledgeable is very, very helpful. So I strongly feel every patient newly diagnosed should meet with a knowledgeable dietitian, and they should be involved in their care forever. Um, so one of my questions that we've really been asking all of our guests that come on to the show is, what advice do you have for us, for our young faculty trainees that are starting their career in gastroenterology? Well, I'd say um, be very open to opportunities. I mean, if you just take my story, the whole thing evolved purely because there seemed to be a question that didn't have an answer at the time. Um, take that opportunity. Be open to it. When somebody gives you this chance, go for it. And then the other thing is, very early in your career, I strongly encourage people to try and find something they're passionate about. Because if you have that passion, it makes your life so much more interesting. Uh, you can do other things as well, but you've got that one thing that you're really passionate about, and you can develop it, create a name for yourself. Uh, it's good for your career. Like one thing I think is very interesting about your backstory is that if I remember correctly, I think in the beginning you had some interest in being a surgeon and then a cardiologist and then finally settled for gastroenterology. Ooh, third choice. Yes, How did you, yeah, what, what happened there? Well, <laughs> well, you clearly made the best choice, but. 
No, so the, the surgeon thing came about because my father, who died at a very young age of 39 because of mitral stenosis from, he had calcific mitral stenosis from rheumatic heart disease. So I grew up believing I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and save the world. Um, it took about 18 months of working with surgeons to convince me that I didn't have the personality <laughs> to be a surgeon. At that stage, I developed a love for pediatrics anyway, and I did do some pediatric cardiology, uh, cardiothoracic surgery. Loved the cardiology side of it, so did a stint there, spent a year in the cath lab, um, did a lot of uh, cardiology, really loved it, but found it a little bit limiting. I hate to say this because I've got two sons who are pediatric cardiologists, <laughs> but you know, it's all about the heart and the rest of the patient right. doesn't seem to have much of a, a role to play. <laughs> um, in the meantime, I had sort of fallen into a gastroenterology uh, uh, situation with my mentor who became a very, very good friend, uh, Malcolm Bowie, who is subsequently deceased, but was a really great man, one of the pioneers of gastroenterology over the, in, in the early years. And he got me interested and I found I loved the fact that there's hands-on, you could use do endoscopies, uh, the whole patient mattered. Um, so it became a, a, an easy decision in the end, but it was a, a very interesting career course that I had. Yeah, so... So Jen, uh, when we're in clinic, when I was a fellow, I'd say uh, every fifth patient, he would come out and say, did you hear that uh, two out of six diastolic blah, 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 murmur? And I'm like, no, I didn't, I didn't hear anything. But uh, Did you actually listen to the heart? Though? I listened to the oh, heart. Okay. I just, uh, he, his, he has an ear for certain things that I still am not able to hear. Yeah, I must say, I did love the cardiology aspect of it. <laughs> so I was uh, looking you up a little bit because we have, you know, we have to introduce That's you. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of interesting things on there. Well, I didn't. Re so first of all, I didn't realize you've been like twelve different positions within NASPGAN. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, like all different kinds of committees. A lot, mostly yeah. education. Um, but obviously, you've also played a big. Uh, you've been very active in the American Academy of Pediatrics. Congratulations on your award a few yeah, months ago. Yeah, right. So it. I guess more for maybe junior faculty trainees um, within like the pediatric GI world. Why would you recommend that we all stay involved uh, in the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, in addition to NASPGAN? I would strongly encourage people to get involved in the societies, both AAP and NASPGAN. Um, it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. You're working with people who are like-minded, who are enthusiastic. Um, you're doing good stuff. Um, and it's different from your clinical work. You know, my wife used to say to me, uh, on many occasions, but you're always going away to these meetings. Why do you do this? And the only reason I could give her is that it gave me a break from the regular clinical work. I was always involved with people who were really good to be around. Um, we did a lot of positive things. I, I cannot recommend it strongly enough. I would strongly encourage every young gastroenterologist get involved. Yeah. Last question. You know, you can take this any direction you want, uh, as long as it's PG. PG. Um, any final words for our listeners? No, again, I think I'd come back to saying just be very open to trying something different, trying something new. Don't always say no when an opportunity comes your way. Rather be prepared to say yes. Um, it may involve some work, but it's so rewarding and it's usually so much fun that I encourage people to take the chance and go for it. Go for it. All right. Sounds good. Let's go for it. Thank you so much Thank for being you. on the show. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much, myself. That 
That was awesome. Talking to Dr. Hill, we really want to thank him again for taking the time to sit down with us. Yeah, I think in terms of stuff that um, I took away from the conversation, I thought it was interesting that um, I I think that over time we may come to embrace more and more um, a non-biopsy diagnosis of celiac disease, at least in certain cases, and certainly if the TTG is significantly elevated. Yeah. Uh, My biggest thing was in the kids less than two, um, still only needing to send that tissue transglutaminase in the total IgA level. Um, Definitely going to change my practice after I read that. And uh, so if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bell Sounds and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. So one, tell one other person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover us. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through the NASPGAN website, which is www naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and the guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.